0: take it and turn back to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be between verses 57 and 75 this morning. I'm sure that you've probably heard different stories, different accounts of men or women who have been exonerated from a crime due to some sort of recent technological advancement that proves their innocence. It's always hard to watch as they interview a man who may be Uh, Was convicted of a crime 25 years ago, uh, and then he had been recently let off the hook because some sort of DNA that they can do a DNA test now and it proves that the man was innocent, that he wasn't at the crime, that it actually wasn't his blood on the murder weapon or something like that. I've even heard of stories of different people, even now, who are charged with a crime in one part of town. But because they had posted something on Facebook just a few minutes before the crime in another part of town, it kind of got them off of the hook for a little while and didn't make the charges stick. But I I wonder how many people who haven't had the opportunity to be a part of the technological age that we're a part of, that could get them off the hook. Where they were wrongly charged with something, they were wrongly convicted of something, And then they went ahead and had to deal with the 25 years or maybe were actually put to death as a result of the crime that they actually didn't do. You even think of in Bible times where all it took according to the law of Moses for something to stick was the testimony of a couple of people. So you don't have any cameras that are all over the place uh, showing uh, different alleyways and so forth where crimes could happen. There's no voice recorders. There's no voice recognition or anything like that. Databases of felon profiles. All it took were two witnesses. And of all the wrongful charges and convictions, I think that we can say the only truly innocent person who has ever lived And the only truly innocent person who has been charged with a crime and law breaking was Jesus himself. Yet here he stands in Matthew chapter 26 as one who they say has committed error. There's nothing that's going to get him off the hook. Even on a God level, God himself wants Jesus to go through this. We looked at that in the Garden of Gethsemane, that this was the Father's will for Jesus. We looked at, even briefly mentioned in Isaiah 53, where it says it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. So even on a God level, this whole arrest and crucifixion, all of it is going to happen. On a human level, he has been deserted by his friends. On a satanic level, he has been betrayed by Judas. And so here he stands being questioned by the high priest. And according to verse 60, two false witnesses have come forward in order to confirm that Jesus should be charged. And I think that one of the sad things as we look at this scenario where Jesus is on this Friday, there's nobody there who's going to make a defense for Jesus. Jesus didn't have the right of attorney. It wasn't, I'm just going to be quiet until I get my attorney to come, my lawyer. I want a lawyer. It wasn't anything like that. He had nobody to defend him. He doesn't even have a friend who will stand there and make a case for him. They had all deserted him according to our last passage. In my mind, what should have happened, of course, idealistic maybe. But what should have happened is his disciples should have filed in right behind him. So they're leading Jesus away and the disciples should have just followed right on behind him. You're going to cuff the Lord? Well, you're going to cuff me. You're going to slap the Lord? You're going to slap me. You're going to spit on him? You're going to spit on me. But that is not what happened. Jesus said to them that if they would be his disciples, what would they do? They would pick up their cross and they would follow after him. Taking up your cross, even for us as professed disciples of Jesus, taking up your cross doesn't mean an easy life. Taking up your cross doesn't mean that you're going to get everything that you want on this earth. It means literally taking an instrument of torture, throwing it on your back, and following the guy who he himself went to the cross and died. But this is not what happened with the disciples. As soon as things got difficult, they dropped their cross and they ran So the people who didn't have any clue were standing before Jesus and they were giving false testimony against Him while the people who did have an idea of who Jesus was and is and they could validate His claims, they all vanished. The truth is, though, that we would have done the same thing. We would have done the same thing. So before we're too hard on the disciples, we need to see ourselves in their weakness. That we would have run If for no other reason than that Jesus said that they would run. And he said that they would desert him. And so they did. Judas betrayed him. The rest of them scattered. And even further on in today's text, you see that Peter denies Jesus. Yet here he stands. Before the council. Before what's called the Sanhedrin. This gathering of men. Religious men. the innocent standing before and being condemned by the guilty. And so that's our setting. Jesus is at the residence of the high priest. At least some of those scribes and Pharisees, maybe not all of the Sanhedrin, but a lot of the Sanhedrin has at least gathered. Um, They have a quorum to at least try Jesus. Verse 58 tips tips us off to the fact that Peter is actually following what's going on, but that he's following at a distance. And so what's clear is that he's being a bit incognito. Peter is being a little bit incognito. He he doesn't want to be seen, but he at least wants to see what happens to Jesus. And so you kind of imagine Peter kind of off in the shadows, watching as this goes on with Jesus. And so the trial, as it were, begins. The religious rulers, they try to get some testimony going up against Jesus. And verse 59 specifically states their goal. What are they trying to do? They're looking to put Jesus to the death. So that's the expressed goal. We don't like this Jesus guy. We think he said treasonous kinds of things against the living God. We want to go ahead and put him to death. So it's not jail for a few years. They don't want to give him a slap on the wrist. The whole goal is to kill this Jesus. And finally, two valid enough witnesses come forward in order to incriminate Jesus. Look there in verse 61 with me. At what they said, Jesus said. The man said... I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in 3 days. So that's what the testimony against Jesus is. This man, Jesus, said I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in that or rebuild it in 3 days. Now, I want you to think, is that true? So so If you're there, you're one of the Sanhedrin, and you're watching this trial happen, is that true? Did Jesus say those words? So place yourself in the courtroom with a high priest and and weigh those words. Did Jesus say that he is able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days? Kind of. It's twisted enough. They took his words. And they twisted them enough to make it sound like something totally different. Let me show you what he actually said in John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. So those are Jesus' words. How do those differ from this man said he could destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days? You see... The difference, Jesus was saying, if you destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus, when he says this, he's on a, a totally different plane than these people he is speaking to in John chapter 2. Because he's not referring to the temple temple. He's referring to himself as the temple. So, so you destroy me, you destroy this temple, John two nineteen. you destroy this temple... And I will raise it up on the third day. So that totally changes things. But even from their perspective, he didn't say what they said he said. They put it in the words, temple of God, indicating that he believed, that they believed, he was talking about the actual, beautiful, holy temple that they had worshipped at for so long, making Jesus. So in their minds, they're thinking Jesus, he wants to destroy the temple of God, making Jesus out to be some sort of revolutionary. He's some sort of zealot, and he wants to tear down the religious strongholds of the day, which is a totally preposterous claim. Why is that preposterous? Because you know how Jesus feels about the temple. Did not Jesus just clear out the money changers from the temple Did he not even pay his taxes when he had Peter go get that coin out of the fish's mouth? That was that two drachma tax to pay for the upkeep of the temple. So Jesus paid his taxes to the temple. He even went in there and he drove out all the money changes because he said that the father's house would be a house of prayer. And so they skewed his words enough to make the whole council believe this man doesn't really care about the temple. In fact, he wants to destroy the temple, which is not what he meant. With saying the temple, he meant his very self. But like any agenda, they take what he said and twist it to their advantage. Politics have been going on for a long time. And so here he stands. He's totally innocent. Two people have brought this charge against him. As though Jesus were actually going to destroy the temple. And threatening to destroy the temple. And in spite of all of this, although wrongly accused. Look at Jesus' reaction in verse 63. Verse 63. But Jesus remained silent. What's what's Jesus doing there? Why? Why isn't he saying anything? I think he's further fulfilling what is said in Isaiah 53. That he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. The high priest then places Jesus under an oath. And he says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus, in that moment, actually begins to speak. He says, you have said so. So tell us, Jesus, are you the Christ? Are are you the Son of God? You have said so. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. Last week I mentioned that the hot water of the situation had revealed who the disciples were. And they all desert him, showing who they really are. And then the hot water of this situation is also revealing again to us who Jesus of Nazareth actually is. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And it's statements like these, affirmations like these. This is why they want to get rid of him. Uh, John chapter 5 and verse 18 says this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The high priest must have been licking his chops as Jesus Says this because these words are what is going to pin Jesus to the cross by making himself equal with God and calling himself the Son of God. The case was totally closed in the minds of the high priest, it was all over. There wasn't a soul standing there that night who would have heard Jesus say. You have said so and think he was innocent. They would have all assumed his guilt. This was complete and utter blasphemy on the part of Christ. Which is actually what he says in verse 65. The high priest, I think this is probably feigning uh, his, his, how, how irritated he is. But he's, he's making this scene but truly joyful in verse 65. He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his testimony. So the high the priest... Ask the council what the penalty should be. And they get exactly what they want. They're looking to put him to death. He asked the council. So what should it be? And the jury as it were. Says he deserves death. They start spitting on him. They slap him. Actually the word for slap. Could also be translated to club. Hitting him with clubs. They begin to play a new game. With their. Prisoner, And they slap him across the face. And they say, uh, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is it that slapped you? Who is it that struck you? You claim to be God. You know everything. Who slapped you? We sing that song at Christmas. Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know that when you kiss your little baby, you've kissed the face of God? But what these men didn't realize is that they were truly slapping the face of God. And so Christ has been charged, he's been convicted, and now he's been sentenced to the death. The only red tape is what we'll look at next time we're together with the Roman government. Uh, The Jews couldn't necessarily just go ahead and put this guy to death. They would need the approval of the Romans who were over them in order to uh, put Jesus to death, which of course they get. But while all of this is happening, there's something else that's happening at the same time. Time. You remember back in verse 58 where we left Peter, right? Peter is off in the shadows watching this whole thing play out at a distance. So what has been happening with Peter? Now, how is he taking all of this in? Let me remind you of Jesus' words back to Peter in verse 35 of chapter 26. He says, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me. Look at verse 69 again. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out To the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows. You will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. So within our passage this morning, you see first the trial, the second part here is the denial. So the trial and the denial. So here Peter is. He's had a pretty eventful night, right? I mean, you remember that he had that first communion with Jesus, that last Passover first communion. He had his feet washed and all of those kinds of things. He goes out to the garden after the communion and he... uh, is asked to pray with Jesus, of course, falling asleep. Just a little bit beforehand, he had tried to kill that guy, Malchus, right? And instead of getting his neck, he accidentally chopped off his ear, even though he intended to kill him. And so it's interesting to consider the night that Peter has already had, and here he is again, waiting in the wings. He's in the distance. So this, I think, is at least a good thing, right? That Peter is at least around, Right? He's, at least he's able to see. He's to be commended for at least being close enough to see Jesus, although he's apparently unwilling to do anything about what's going on to the one whom he had confessed previously, is the Christ. But the Gospel of Mark tells us that Peter is actually sitting, warming himself by the fire. And that's kind of irritating, isn't it? That's a little irritating. That there Jesus is cold, being slapped around, being accused of certain things. And there Peter is warming himself by the fire. And as he is, a servant girl comes up to him and says, you also were with Jesus. Now, keep in mind, who's saying a, a servant girl. Let's just kind of imagine a, a little girl coming up to him. You also were with Jesus. So it's kind of like she was an eyewitness. Like she herself had seen him with Jesus. Jesus, and Peter flat out denies it. He denies it before everybody who is there and able to listen. I heard a person refer to this once in regard to Peter's denial as strike one, right? First time he gets approached, first time he denies, strike one. Then another servant girl comes up to him and said the same thing. But to those around there, she said, this man was with Jesus. And taking things a little bit further, Peter denies it with an oath. Maybe like you or I would say when we were very young and very immature, I swear on a stack of Bibles that I you know, deny being around this man. Or uh, I swear on my grandmother's life that I haven't done this or that kind of a thing. But he swears that he has had no affiliation with Jesus. Strike two. Then the bystanders come up to Peter and they're all like, You, you are one of them. Your accent betrays you. And I think we can understand a little bit about accents in this state, can't we? Um, you run into somebody at huzzies', right? And they say... Yes, <laughs> I'm going to reverse it. So you run into somebody at huzzies and they say, Hey can you all tell me where to find the milk? You'd say, oh, you must be from the South, right? You would automatically assume that that person was from the South. There would be no need to even question it. But what if they had actually said, actually, I was born and raised in Augusta. You you wouldn't believe them, would you? Why, Why wouldn't you believe them? You wouldn't believe them because their accent has betrayed them. And Peter, being a Galilean fisherman, had a certain identifiable brogue or accent. And it gave him away as from being from Galilee, the place where Jesus did a bunch of ministry. So you were with him. I can hear it in your accent. You were with Jesus. So take comfort in that. Jesus must have had an accent as well. But for the third time, he denies. Strike three. Peter denies The Lord. He denies the Lord to the servant girl. He denies the Lord again to another servant girl. And then he denies it to a bunch of other people, even swearing and invoking a curse upon himself should he be lying. So the indication isn't that Peter is jumping around and using all kinds of profane words. That's not what it means by swearing. The indication is that Peter is saying something like, I swear and make an oath by all that I am that I am not lying. And so Peter has, in the heat of this moment, let everything just come to a complete head. It's, it's totally ramping up. Each time he get, he's getting more and more upset, finally he makes the great promise and oath that he is not lying. He has nothing to do with this Jesus. So for all of those lofty statements that Peter had made concerning his love and his fidelity to Christ, he folds under the pressure of a couple little girls and a few bystanders. Right? You consider that. Yeah, Jesus, I confess that you are the Lord. I confess that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. All those kinds of statements to Jesus. And then when a couple little girls and some random people ask him about his involvement with Jesus, how does he respond? He totally folds under the pressure. It wasn't the angry mob that was threatening him. It wasn't the high priest that put him in the witness chair. None of that. Just a couple little girls and a few bystanders. And he folds like a napkin. But you can see as you compare these two accounts where Jesus is on trial and Peter's denial. You can see a couple parallels here. Of course, Jesus is led by Caiaphas, the high priest, and Peter is following at a distance. Jesus is questioned by the religious elite, and Peter is questioned by a couple little girls and some bystanders. Jesus is being asked with questions about his connection to God, and Peter is being asked questions about his connection to Jesus. They could think of no good reason to incriminate Jesus. Peter's accent incriminates him. Jesus stood silent, Peter couldn't keep his mouth closed. Jesus tells the higher truth. Peter tells lies to all those around. There's a great contrast here. Jesus' strength under fire. and Peter's inability to handle a couple of kids. Jesus' truth. Peter's deception. There's just a canyon between these two men. And after Peter makes his third and final denial... Cock-a-doodle-doo. The Gospel of Luke records for us that the moment the rooster crowed, Jesus looked at Peter. Presumably, Jesus' face still has that dried blood on it from the garden. There's probably sweat. There's spit hanging from his face. Black and blue from being slapped around. And the cock crows... And Jesus' eyes lock onto Peter. And what a moment that must have been for Peter. Certainly something he would have never forgotten in that look. The eyes of Christ seeing Peter in his most vulnerable, messed up moment, right? And the truth is that the same knowledge that Jesus had that Peter would deny him and sin against him is the same Jesus that knows and sees us when we sin. And what is baffling is that Jesus knew all of this. He knew that there would be so much sin to bear upon the cross for you and for me and for Peter, yet he died. He went to the cross anyway, even though he knew us and he knows we continue to struggle with our sin. And that kind of truth leads us to sing the kinds of words, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. What a moment that really must have been for Peter. Again, in his greatest disgrace to be looked upon, to be seen in his sin, to be totally exposed and vulnerable in the eyes of Christ And that is what really makes us fearful, doesn't it? I'm afraid of that. That being seen as vulnerable and being exposed and you seeing my own sin, those kinds of things scare us. We theologically know, right? We talk about God is everywhere, right? God is omnipresent. God knows everything, that He is omniscient, right? But we still slip around in sin like nobody's watching when he is. But the reality is that what we have with Christ is the best news. Is that although he knows us and he knows our weaknesses and he knows our downfalls and he's able to sympathize with that. He still fully loves us. Just like he fully knew the situation going on with Peter Yet he fully loves Peter in light of the knowledge that he has of Peter's weakness. I love this quote from Tim Keller. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. And it fortifies us for any difficulty in life that is thrown at us. Do you see what Keller is saying there? It's great to be loved. Like puppy love. Infatuation. When the person doesn't even really know you. But that's totally superficial. But then when we are known, but we are not loved... That's the worst thing of all. When somebody knows all of the dirt and all of the baggage and your sin struggles and all of those things, but they don't love you, that's terrible. It's only when we're both fully known and fully loved, that's when we're able to flourish. And Peter would soon learn how much Jesus loved him. Jesus would go to the cross for Peter's sin. He would die for his sinful denial of Jesus. This is one of the great truths of the gospel. That we are fully known, yet we are fully loved. And that fact, as Keller says, it liberates us from hypocrisy. It humbles us out of self-righteousness. It fortifies us for whatever is going on within our lives. But when you look at Peter's life, and you kind of consider what he did and where he had gone from this point in his denial of Jesus, what do you see? Of course, Jesus goes to the cross, he bears the penalty for sin, he bears the wrath of God and the scoffing of men and all of those things. But what happens with Peter? This is actually the last time that the book of Matthew is going to mention Peter's name. But we see something interesting happen in the book of John. Why don't you actually pop over to the book of John? John chapter 21, I just want you to look at this in closing with me. John 21, beginning in verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, meaning John, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put out his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Now down to verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, which is Peter, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him for the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. In verse 19b and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. That's just gripping. That this is not long after Peter's Three times denying Jesus. And John says, that's the Lord on on the seashore. And what does Peter do? He throws himself into the sea and swims as fast as he can to go and see his Lord. And then that beautiful conversation between Peter and Jesus. Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. Then feed my lambs. Peter, do you know, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know everything, and you know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Peter. Do you think that Peter got the message? There's indication in 1 Peter chapter 5 that he got the message. He's talking to the elders of the church, and he says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. What's it sound like Peter is concerned with? He's concerned that the lambs, that the sheep get fed and that they get taken care of. Responding and obeying the words of Jesus. Feed them. Tend to them. Feed them. Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to affirm his love three times in light of his denying him three times. Again, what a canyon between Jesus and Peter on this night where the denial and the trial happen, And what a canyon there is between you and me and Jesus. There's just a vast canyon that none of us can jump over. None of us could ever be as good as him. None of us could ever do the things that he had done. None of us could die for our own sins. Jesus does and has done. And will do all things well. And we're going to fail consistently. Yet the truth of the gospel. Is that although. That it's, it, it's that he is going to progressively. Shorten that canyon. Yes he has been the bridge. From us to God. But yet as we're made more like Jesus. That that shortens. That as the years go by, and as time goes by, he's going to progressively make us more and more like himself, shortening that canyon until we're finally with him when we die. It's going to be incredible. That one day, like Jesus and Peter are even now, we will be with him, beholding him and his glory in glorious perfection, never to sin again. Just like even now, Peter himself, not sinning, with Christ, like Christ, loving him perfectly, and so will we. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the example of yourself in light of the trial that you went to the cross. That you didn't stop then and back out or anything, but submitted yourself to the will of God. And going to the cross on our behalf and on Peter's behalf, and Lord, I think we see ourselves in Peter, where there may be times where we're not quick to speak about you, and would rather not be identified with you. And Lord, I pray that you'll break us of our sin and cause us to love you. We're thankful for our baptism, even that identifies us ourselves with you. And Lord, we pray that as we continue together as a church, we'll be bold in our faith. We thank you, Lord, for making us consistently more and more like you. And we look forward to the day in heaven with you for all eternity. Seeing the one who died for us and then understanding, understanding hardships and struggles in this life. Understanding our sin even better, but not having the struggle with it. We look forward to that day. I pray this in Christ's name.